Welcome to the Signal Podcast. It's recorded at the University of King's College, unceded land of the Mi'kmaq, where we study, work, and play. I'm Olivia Malley. I'm Sam Gillett. And I'm Leslie Tatum. And we're student journalists at the Audio Workshop at the University of King's College. This podcast is about colonialism. It's a big topic. So we're zooming in on a couple of case studies to see how the conversation is playing out today. This is Emma Stevens' rendition of Blackbird by the Beatles, sung in Mi'kmaq. Stevens and her classmates record the song to raise awareness of the threat of losing Indigenous languages. Our podcast explores Indigenous history and how it's being remembered and commemorated. It's been almost two years since the Cornwall statue came down. We wanted to explore what's happening now. So we took a trip around HRM to visit places that mean the most to our story and the people involved. We're going to jump across the harbour to the community of Dartmouth to take a look at the use of Mi'kmaq and Dartmouth place names. Mi'kmaq being an anglicized and debatable pronunciation of Mi'kmaq. And I'm going back to my hometown, Aurelia, Ontario. I talked to a bunch of people there about a similar statue conversation. Buckle up! We're here in peace to get rid of something that's offensive. There are people scalped and beheaded on both sides. It's just, it's unfortunate. I'm not against them. I'm absolutely not against them. I'm for me. That sound of protest that took place leading up to the removal of the Cornwallis statue. Edward Cornwallis was the founder of Halifax. He was sent by the British Crown in 1749 to establish a fort for the empire. Historically, Cornwallis was portrayed as a heroic figure. He's now seen as the man responsible for the genocide of many Mi'kmaq people. I met up with Professor John Cameron at Dalhousie University. He teaches about the historical context of Edward Cornwallis. When Cornwallis first came here, the British were radically outnumbered. In the original treaties of peace and friendship that go back to 1725, there was no way the British could impose their presence on the Mi'kmaq or the Acadians in Nova Scotia. And it was only gradually by... The 17, late 1740s, early 1750s, that they, you know, were in a military position where they could start imposing themselves. Halifax was founded on violence, and some say you can't compare his actions to today's societal standards. Even if we were judging Cornwallis by the standards of the 18th century, he was extreme and acted in ways that were out of line with social norms even in the 18th century. One of the main problems with the Cornwallis statue and the kind of commemoration of Cornwallis is that it biased and privileged one version of the story that was the the dominant colonial imperial narrative that celebrated Cornwallis as the founder as a hero and the founder of Halifax. It would be quite different if the statue of Cornwallis was still in in the park, but it was surrounded by interpretive panels and interpretive messages that told the story of Cornwallis as a genocidal maniac. Inspired by historian John Reed, Cameron says we should think of Cornwallis through the lens of historical memory. Is this somebody that we would choose to name schools after, to put up on a pedestal to celebrate his memory, or are there other people that we think it's more appropriate to celebrate and put up on pedestals? He says that it's important that we incorporate all views, the Mi'kmaq, Scottish, Black, Acadian, and the British when remembering Cornwallis. 
Cameron thinks that the Mi'kmaq should get the final say in how we remember Cornwallis. They're not advocating that he be forgotten. It's just, it's mostly about how he's remembered, not whether he's remembered. Um, and the statue could play, you know, an important role in that, and even showing that up until is it 2018 in, in Halifax that we chose to put this person on a pedestal, and then part of the history is deliberately choosing to take him off the pedestal. Although the statue was removed almost two years ago, the park is still named Cornwallis Park, and Cornwallis Street hasn't changed. I also wanted to find out more about the process behind the removal and what the city will be doing next. Way Mason is a councillor of the district. In 2014, there was a community consultation to renovate the playground in the park. More than 200 activists showed up to the meeting demanding for the statue to be removed. In 2015, he put forward a motion to have the statue removed. It was denied. Fast forward to about nine months later, Sean Cleary made the motion to remove the statue, and uh, it passed, and it passed with substantial to, or to have a report come back about removing the statue. Uh, and those things happened, uh, finally. Uh, the statue coming down uh, was, was very... Uh, challenging because what we were trying to do was do similar to what the city of Victoria and other places have done and have a committee recommend on what to do but got the step but the statue became such a flashpoint that we took the statue down before the committee had a chance to report after the removal of the statue a committee was formed to commemorate Cornwallis and indigenous history in Halifax it has been nearly two years since the removal of the statue we still haven't heard what will happen to it will it be put back destroyed housed in a museum or will it just simply stay in storage? Mason says the committee isn't sharing decisions right now. We're trying to have a broad engagement with our First Nations partners and the entire community about how we, like, colonial settlement of Halifax is a fact and that history is going to be recognized, but in a different kind of context than one side beating the other. He says that Halifax needs to tell the whole story. And it's hard for those who grew up seeing Cornwallis as a hero to shift their view. But this discussion obviously can't take place without hearing from the Mi'kmaq. Chief Roderick Gugu of the Wekoba First Nation in Cape Breton is one of the co-chairs of the committee. On his way to a meeting, I spoke with him on the phone. He says the Cornwall statue was always viewed as a symbol of colonialism that represented a bad past for the Mi'kmaq people. But he was the one that uh, initiated a, a bounty on the the scalps of our people, eh? So uh, over, it's been a very sore sticking point to the Mi'kmaq people to view that statue every time that we would, we'd, uh, we'd be in Halifax or people that would be going through Halifax to see the statue uh, where it stood, eh? So it was not a, it was not a very good uh, symbol to us. The discussion about Cornwallis had developed over time, he says. Despite there being threats and protests from white supremacy groups, he was happy that the HRM took it down themselves. He says the committee is a way of moving forward. I was quite pleased, to be honest with you. I think, you know, they, um, they did the right thing uh, because it's, uh, it has created conflict, a lot of uh, ill feelings uh, amongst our people. Our job would be just to recommend to the uh, uh, HRM uh, how, how they should move forward. We're not the ones who are going to make that decision. Uh, all we're going to do is recommend... Uh, what, what steps should be taken in regards to the statue and uh, maybe renaming of the park and, and doing some other uh, things to better the relationship uh, with, with the, uh, the Mi'kmaq people and the rest of Nova Scotia. Oh,
So it seems like a big conversation, and it also seems like there isn't really a, a, a decision that's been made yet. Yeah, when I spoke with Councillor Mason, he said that they wouldn't really ha come up with a decision until the next municipal election. Jumping off that, there are places in my community that could be possibly seeing a name change in the future. So we drove down to Halifax Ferry to travel across the harbor. Welcome to Dartmouth, a community within the HRM. Dartmouth is home to a bustling downtown, beautiful lakes, and geese so important, a memorial was held when two of them were hit by a car. One thing about the community is certain. The name Micmac is extremely popular. So now we are standing right beside Lake Micmac. You can see Micmac Mall from here, and if you went down the road a little bit farther, you'd be at the Micmac Tavern. The lake was named after the indigenous people who canoed the lake for thousands of years, the Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq was anglicized to Mi'kmaq, hence the difference between the lake's name and the people. But, it should be known that some Mi'kmaq people still refer to themselves as Mi'kmaq. It is believed that places like the tavern and the mall got their names from the lake. Now we're at Mi'kmaq Mall, a well-known and popular place in Dartmouth. It looks a lot different than it did when I first moved here. My family and I moved to Dartmouth in 2003. I can still remember when the mall had palm trees, a fountain, and even an arcade. More recently, though, the mall started $55 million renovations. One thing they don't plan on renovating is the mall's name. Oh, I was not expecting to introduce myself. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I guess, um, my name's Nick Isaac Pictou. I'm a third-year Bachelor of Arts student at Dalhousie. This is my own personal opinion. It's one thing when somebody, like you themselves, who like you use the word to refer to yourself, but like when an outside force kind of does that, it just feels wrong personally to me, which is why I don't particularly, I find I have weird feelings about that being called the Micmac Mall because it's not really, it's like non-Mimaw people using that word to refer to us. If that makes sense. So like I, I don't I don't know how exactly I truly feel. It's like I feel like they should if they're at least gonna keep like that, the least they can do is change it to Mingma. But like I don't I really doubt they're gonna do that. Speaking for the mall, Tamitha Oakley says they have no desire to change the name because they're a well established municipal address. But she says they would be open to conversations with First Nations groups in regards to the name. I asked Nick if she thought her opinion on the mall's name was popular among Mi'kmaq people. It very varies for how some people, Mi'kmaq people view the name. Like some people think, oh yeah, that's cool. That's us. Look at us go. Kind of thing. And it's like I said, some still refer to themselves as Mi'kmaq. So that also could be a way where they don't really see much wrong with the name itself. So those are probably why there isn't like as much of an outcry that's like potentially just differing opinions within the community itself. So I feel like that could be why there hasn't been the same kind of thing compared to like the Cornwallis statue. Uh, now we're at Micmac Canoe Club. On the side facing the road, it still says Micmac, but on the side facing the water, they've actually changed the spelling to Mi'kmaq. Uh, hi, I'm Brian Lilly. I'm a resident of Dartmouth, and my family has a membership at the Mi'kmaq Canoe Club. A lot of the clubs have names that are derived from the Mi'kmaq language. So <clears throat> I think the problem for the Mi'kmaq Club is that it's the only club that has a name that represents a nation, so to speak. So it's a kind of a funny position to be in. Andrew Russell is with the Atlantic Division of Canoe Kayak Canada, and he's made changes to many of the Atlantic Canoe Clubs in order to better acknowledge who used the lakes first. Up until a few years ago, the people who'd been running the ADCKC had been a bit older and a bit more conservative. 
Um, Andrew, on the other hand, uh, he was very interested in, you know, understanding the situation and making appropriate responses. And I think to his credit, you know, he, he worked with the Mi'kmaq community as well. The North American Indigenous Games and the Canoe Sprint World Championships are coming up on Lake Bunuk. The Mi'kmaq Club now has information panels explaining the role of the Mi'kmaq in the original territory and dual signage in both English and Mi'kmaq. On top of that, the Mi'kmaq Club has made its own changes. They replaced the center of their logo from what's popularly known as an Indian head mascot to a maple leaf. As for the name, that's a more difficult conversation. Our club is... Um it's a unique club in the fact that it's like a social center for the lake. So change for the club is a bit, it's delicate, I would say, because it has such a social condenser aspect to it. On the other hand, I think um, it can come and it can come slowly. I imagine all of these names will change. That's my own personal opinion. I think it would be a very good outcome of respect, really, that the names could find another variation. And we are heading to Grand Parade, which is kind of uh, South Barrington, right by Freak Lunchbox. For somebody's not from Halifax, though, like where is Barrington in the city? Uh, downtown. And Grand Parade's kind of like the center of that, right? Yep. It's like the center of Halifax. They're currently setting up the giant Christmas tree for Christmas tree lighting tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's where City Hall is, right? yes. Pretty key. So we're um, like outside Halifax's City Hall which is where the debates and conversations took place um, last year and are still taking place in the advisory committee um, over Cornwallis. But I was really curious about comparing that to my hometown because I'm from Aurelia, which has a similar uh, colonial history. I'm going to take you all the way back about a thousand kilometers away to Aurelia, Ontario. Aurelia has long had an image as a small town, a bit quaint. An hour and a half from the bustle of Toronto, it's the subject of some good-natured fun. Welcome to but it's changing. It's a town with lots of families and rapidly expanding suburbs, though it's hardly a hotbed for controversy. Uh, so yeah, uh, so my name is Steve Clark. I'm mayor of the sunshine city of Aurelia, a wonderful uh, small urban center, a small city on the shores of Lake Coochiching and Lake Simcoe. And we have a beautiful waterfront park. Uh, which I would, uh, suggest in the summer, those parks are bustling with tourists. In the biggest, Kuchijing Park, there's even a miniature train run by the local Rotary Club. The Samuel de Champlain Monument sat in the middle of it all. And that's what I wanted to talk about. I called local journalist Dave Dawson to find out more about the statue and its place in my town. So the Champlain Monument is probably the, the thing, other than Gordon Lightfoot and Stephen Leacock, that we're most known for in Aurelia. Um, the monument is, has been described by many as the, the, the nicest bronze statue uh, of its kind, uh, maybe in the world. It's in the center of our biggest and most central park. It's a giant uh, statue of Champlain with a sword and his hat at the very top. Flanking him below that are, are native, uh, very um, muscular uh, natives uh, on one side and, and uh, Courier de Bois on the other side, representing trade. I mean, you know, it, it's a magnificent piece of work and piece of art that's right in the very center of our town. And, uh, the statue was removed in 2017 for cleaning. That's when the conversation began. But I think Dave can tell this part of the story better. It became apparent that many people in the community did not want it returned in, in the form in which it was. So that's when it started hitting the radar. I mean, we did original stories... 
um, out of city council when when it came to city council that um, they they wanted to restore the monument. Um, but at that time, it seemed very routine, um, and it was only later, in, as the as it dragged on, as the absence of the monument dragged on, um, that it became a very polarizing issue in our community. Dave Dawson runs Aurelia Matters, a local news site. Since the site's birth after the print paper in the town shut down in 2017, it's become an online community board for Aurelians to share their opinions. Judging by the hundreds of Facebook comments on many Champlain stories, they seem protective of Champlain, defensive. A lot of the comments decry political correctness culture. But I wanted to hear from people who saw the statue in a different light. They didn't see art, and they certainly don't see an objective history being reflected. Hello. Hello, is this Tori Kress? Yes, it is. Hi there, my name is Sam Gillette. I'm calling from University of King's College. Thanks so much for taking my I'm Anishinaabe. I live on Chimnasing in Ontario in Georgia Bay. Uh, I'm uh, I don't know more organizer. So when you, uh, when you saw the Champlain Monument for the first time, what did you see? Uh, the same thing I always see, a celebration of, you know, what Christianity did to us as Indigenous people and, you know, the, the erasure of us. And he's, he's being worshipped. There's Indians at his feet for crying out loud. It's so offensive. And you can't get any more offensive than that. What does it feel like um, when you found out that they're bringing the statue back and that they're actually, like, reinstalling it? You know, in this era of reconciliation, Indigenous people are telling people, this is what it looks like. And Canadians are not listening to us. We're telling them what it is. And they go, no, no, you're not listening. We're going to do this for you. It's How is that even different from colonization? Tory Kress and many others spent last Canada Day protesting beside the monument site. If we have the decision to return the statue back to this land, we are once again victimizing another generation. Colonization isn't just Tory's past. It's all around her. It's more than history. You know, we we did our best in that area to get them to listen to us, and it's pretty clear that they do not want to hear us. Mayor Clark and the city council didn't have the final say over whether or not the statue would go back. That was Parks Canada's decision. But they voted to advise in favor of its return. When the statue comes back, it will look different. A Champlain Monument working group came up with a couple changes. First, the indigenous men who sat at the foot of Champlain will be moved away to be on their own statue pedestal. And Parks Canada says a new plaque will tell a more complete history. Uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, Sam, I lived and breathed this for many, many, many months, but I truly believe it may be the best resolution that was there. It simply, in the end, was uh, a solution where nobody got everything they wanted, but everybody got something they wanted. Aurelia is just another example of a similar conversation to the one that Halifax is having, over the legacy of colonialism and its place names or street names. It's happening across Canada, though, across North America. I walked down University Avenue in Halifax to talk to someone who studies the idea of empire and colonization. Hello, how are you? Very well, thanks. Nice to meet you. My name is Dr. Ajay Parasaram. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History and Department of International Development Studies, and I specialize in colonial history. And um, we were talking about how it seems like these conversations about how we deal with colonial history yeah. seem new. And especially to me as like a white settler in Canada, it mm. seems like they're just coming up to the forefront. But mm-hmm. you were talking about how that's always 
been right. your experience um, mm-hmm. in Canada, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a really good point. And I think you know, depending on one's positionality, uh, it affects obviously the way that you experience and walk through the world. In the past, like when I was growing up, we were heavily discouraged uh, by by our teachers, by our classmates, etc., to ever talk about race because race was always understood as something that was resolved forever ago. Um, and I feel like it's only been recent, uh, like you know, the last I want to say six years or so, that uh, th- talking about things like race, colonization, indigeneity has become more of a mainstream thing, which is a good thing. It's good that we're able to talk about it, but um, the experiences were always there. We just weren't allowed to talk about it publicly. I think when we think about statues and why they're important now, it's less a story about history and more a story about the present than we than we care to admit. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that the statue is actually a political object, a political historical object that is mobilized to uh, give voice to a certain perspective and to silence others. So by putting, uh, you know, Confederate statues on display in the historical context of Jim Crow laws and, uh, you know, what what little gains African Americans had been gaining for themselves in that moment. It was a way for the, the sort of racist white community in that context to take up public space and say, you are not welcome here. And we were uh, talking about the place names, and I guess even Canada right. as opposed to Turtle Island. And what role does place names and the names of landmarks, what role does that have in the idea of colonization or decolonizing a space? The process of naming, in many cases, has been a process of systematic erasure uh, because it ignored all the indigenous names that were here before or co-opted them and brought them in English and that sort of thing. So I think that the act of renaming can actually serve the purpose of uh, rehabilitation. And I think it, it, we shouldn't exaggerate it either, right? You know, you change a place name, but you change, but if you change none of the policies, uh, it's not going to do a whole lot. It's not like a Band-Aid. To, That's right. Yeah. If we change the name Halifax to Chibuktuk, uh, it would be nice, but in and of itself, ruefully insufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, a, but, a, but a nice step in the right direction. So uh, the important thing is, I think, to include um, the people whose land that you're on fundamentally in all of the decisions that go along with that land. In Halifax, Councillor Mason says there's two things that are going to be happening. There's the urban reserves um, that will be happening in Tufts Cove after the Halifax explosion. That land no longer belonged to the Mi'kmaq people, so they want to give it back. And there is $65 million budgeted for the Native Friendship Center rebuild. Um, They're saying that this is going to be the biggest national Native Friendship Center. So, Olivia and Leslie, we've talked to you a wide range of people about um, the issues surrounding Cornwallis and how Halifax is remembering its history and engaging with the Indigenous people who live on this unceded territory. What have you guys learned, do you think, about how the conversation is unfolding today? It's kind, of, it's kind of to see it's not just dying, you know, like they took the statue away and it's good to see that it is, it, it's not plateauing, you know, it's continuing. Like it might not be like changing Cornwallis Street and changing Cornw- Cornwallis Park, but it seems like it's happening just in different ways. Yeah, they're definitely trying to find a way to reconcile. Yeah. I think it's a little bit different in Dartmouth just because the opinions are so divided. Like I don't know if we'll ever see a similar conversation to Cornwallis conversations would seem to be building and building off each other. 
Yeah, in my conversation with Chief Gugu, he mentioned that Micmac isn't as big as the Cornwallis issue. Well, it's been great voyaging around Halifax with you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for coming along with us. Stay tuned for more from The Signal.